All right. Well, to start off this morning, I want to ask a favor of everyone in the room, if you would. I need you to get out your wallet and hand me $5, if you would. Just everybody, $5. A a few of you are actually reaching for it. That's generous. I appreciate that. Thank you. I expected a few more like, uh, I'm not sure about that, looks. But some of you were like, oh, yeah, I got this. Let's do it. No, I don't need $5. You can put it away. I just wanted you to, in that moment, have that thought in your head. And let's be honest, just a moment of transparency. I'm going to ask you to shout it out. When I asked for $5, what are some of the first thoughts that went through your mind? I'm going to have to give you 10 unless you can make change. Okay, that's, that's honest. All right, that's good. Anybody else? Be- what's that? Better than 100? Okay, that's fair. Anybody want to be honest and say, uh, what is he up to? Anybody like, yeah, okay, good. There you go. That's good, yeah. There's this filter, like filtration process that our brain kind of walks through, right? We all have it here lately whenever our phone rings and it's some other number. We've been conditioned and programmed like, Hey, your uh, warranty on your car is up. Would you like to renew that? Sure it is. It's been up for a while. This is your final notice. I wish it was my final notice. You won't stop calling me. I know that there's so many scams and so many different things going on in the world that the moment someone asks us for money or asks us for help, there is this system that goes off in our brain. Number one, is this person trustworthy? Do I know them? And when Nick stands up and says, I need everybody to hand me five bucks, some of you may go, okay, well, I trust him, maybe. I'll see what he's up to. Some of you may be going, we just met. I'm not sure I know who you are. You may be one of those guys like on TV who's trying to buy himself a private jet. I'm not sure if this is okay. But then even if I pass that first level of Nick is trustworthy, then it's kind of like, what is he up to? Because even if he's trustworthy, I'm not sure what he's got in mind for this money. He's just looking to take his family out for a nice lunch today or something. Who knows what he's up to? Why am I giving you this money? So there's this process that goes off in our brain of saying, do I trust them? Do I know his intentions? Do I know his heart? What's the purpose behind it? Now, if I had come out and said a little differently, started a little differently, said, I want to share with you something that's going on in the world, and there's this ministry called Compassion International. I'm just using this as an example. I'm not giving them a sales pitch or anything. I'm just saying, what if I came out and said something like that, and I talked and I showed videos of how kids in Compassion International who are sponsored as children are... um, you know, raised in this in this community where there there's Christian teaching and they get an education and they have food and they have clothing and their needs are provided for. And a lot of times these kids are so impacted that they come back in and start serving compassion themselves and, and trying to make an impact in return. And they're doing a lot of cool stuff. And honestly, it only takes this much amount of money, basically a little over a dollar per day. And if everybody in the room gave five bucks, we'd have a kid completely taken care of for an entire year. Then everybody, by the time that was over, might go, oh, wow. Yeah, no, that sounds great. We could make a really big impact by handing out $5. And I'm not taking a collection of $5, just to clarify. But if I started with the intention in the heart of what it is we're trying to accomplish, it's a lot easier for everybody to get excited and on board, right? I understand the heart behind what this gift could accomplish. I understand the tremendous impact that a simple $5 sacrifice could be for me. And when we talk about... This idea of someone trying to get us to do something and us having this process of filtration. Because even in that moment, you might say, oh yeah, the need sounds really good, but I still don't know you very well. Are you trustworthy? Are you collecting this and telling us you're sending it to Compassion, but really you're stocking up your bank account? There's this process of needing to feel like you trust, feeling like you need to understand, feeling like you understand someone's intentions and their heart before you're willing to just follow and go and do whatever it is they're asking. 
And it's exactly that that we're going to talk about this morning as we continue to discuss what it looks like for us to impact the next generation. This morning we're going to talk about what it looks like to fight for the heart. Because we live in a world where we want students and we want everyone, really our neighbors and everyone we encounter, to pick up this book, to pick up God's word, to dive into it and see God as good. To see God as trustworthy and worthy of following. To know that this is God's word and that it's trustworthy. But we live in a culture where there's a lot of apprehension about that. I've read the Old Testament and I'm not sure that God is always loving. I've read some of this and I've heard a lot of stories about the, foul, like the inconsistencies of God's word. And I'm not sure it's trustworthy. Or I've seen the church and some of its hypocrisy and people say that you're supposed to do this, but they're so mean and hateful and venomous over here and, and there's this attitude over here and I'm just not sure that the body is trustworthy. And so what does it look like for us to make an impact on the generation, not just by trying to convey the message and say, here's what you got to do, follow me and trust me and just do it, versus helping people understand the heart of the gospel, helping them understand God's heart and what their role in his story looks like. And so that's exactly where we're going to do this morning. We're going to dive into God's word and talk about that. But before we get too much further and open that, I would like to just bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Father, I love you. And I thank you so much that you have made yourself known and that you have made yourself so accessible. Father, on our, our, on our own efforts, we have no ability to get into your presence and into a relationship with you. But thankfully, through your son and through your sacrifice and your willingness to give of yourself, we have that veil, as we sung about earlier, that's been torn. And we have access to you knowing that we can be in your presence and call on your name and that you will speak to us. And so this morning, we humbly bow in your presence and ask you to impact our hearts, to help us to truly see the love that you have for us so that we can in turn love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. And we can love our neighbors, ourselves, and we can continue to grow in your likeness and become more like you. So I just pray that this time would be yours and that everything was said and done up here would bring glory and honor to your name. We love you and it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Go ahead, if you would, and turn to Exodus chapter 20. And we're going to look at Exodus 20 here in just a moment. But before we do, I want to kind of give a quick recap of where we've been here in the book of Exodus. And we haven't been studying it the last couple of weeks. I don't want to mislead you in that, but just kind of a quick synopsis of what's going on, just to make sure we're all on the same page. Exodus is this book in which it begins with the Israelites, God's chosen people, in slavery in Egypt. They are being held captive and being forced to work. And God hears the cries of his people. They're being, they're being persecuted. They're, they're killing off some of their sons. And that's where we find Moses at the very beginning. Moses' mother has this plan to protect him. And actually what happens is he ends up being raised in an Egyptian household by Pharaoh's daughter. And God is kind of protecting this man and preparing him. And eventually he runs into trouble. He kills an Egyptian. And he has to flee for his life. And he leaves. And he finds this peaceful life as a shepherd out in the wilderness kind of taking care of his father-in-law Jethro's sheep. And in that moment, God calls him and says, Hey, I know you're here. I know you've found safety. I know that you found comfort in this, but I'm going to send you back to Egypt, and I'm going to use you because I've heard my people's cries. I've heard that they're hurting. I've heard their cries for help, and I'm sending you to go help them. And so he sends Moses, and through the course of Moses' service and what he does, God performs these amazing signs to impact the life 
of the Egyptians and to impact the heart of Pharaoh. And there's these ten different plagues that like radically rock this culture of people and yet don't harm the Israelite people. Time after time, God unleashes this plague to try to convince Pharaoh to change his mind. And Pharaoh's heart is hardened over and over and over again. Until eventually the tenth plague, he takes the firstborn of every family and every bit of livestock, except for those who spread the blood over the doorposts. And they're spared, and finally Pharaoh says, get out, leave now. And God not only gets them out of there, but he also like, has this amazing plan where they walk out with a tremendous amount of possessions and wealth. Livestock and animals and, and all kinds of stuff, money, gold, all these things that they've acquired from the Egyptians. They're leaving in a pretty healthy state, and as they go, Pharaoh eventually changes his mind again and starts to chase after them. And as Pharaoh's chasing after them, they hit the Red Sea. And now it's a dead end, and the people start to panic. They start to worry. Pharaoh's on our tail with his chariots. What are we going to do? And God instructs Moses once again. He raises his staff, and the waters part. And the Israelites walk across on dry ground. Once again, God's showing his provision. And eventually, they start to get through, and they all kind of get to a point where Pharaoh's still right behind them. And then the Red Sea closes back in and washes Pharaoh and his armies away, eliminating this threat and this enemy. But now they're out in the wilderness. Now they're out away from Egypt, and they start to realize, wait, we had a lot of food there. Our needs were provided for. We had kind of stability. It wasn't ideal. We were being oppressed. We were in slavery, but some things were consistent. We could depend on them. Now we don't have anything to eat. What are we supposed to do? And they start to grumble and complain that quickly. And God provides food. He provides manna. He provides quails. He provides water from a rock. God continues to meet their needs. And here they are being provided for in such amazing ways by God's hand all along the way. And we get to chapter 20. Moses is meeting with God. And like he is meeting with God up on this mountain and God is handing him these commandments. He's starting to give for the first time ever this law that's going to direct God's people. And this is how it begins here in chapter 20. Most of you might have a heading there at the beginning of chapter 20 that says the Ten Commandments. So this may be something we're familiar with, but I want us to point out a couple details that happen very early on here in these words. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, the Ten Commandments go on there. But we're going to stop right there because I want to focus in on this passage of Scripture for just a moment. You notice at the very beginning there, he says, I'm the Lord your God who rescued you and brought you out of slavery. I brought you out of Egypt. He's reminding them. He's saying this to all people before he gives these commands, before he gives these laws, he prefaces this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery and out of Egypt. I am the one who has provided for you. He's kind of setting that basis and he says, you should have no other gods before me. And I think there's this heart in behind what God's saying. You realize, I am the one who's done this for you. 
There should be no other gods. A lot of other cultures, a lot of other people have these other gods, these statues, these other things that they worship. Those haven't done anything for you. I am the one true God who has delivered you. You should have no other gods before me. I'm a very jealous God. Don't make any carved idols for yourself. Don't make any images to worship and to follow because they can't help you. They can't benefit you in the same ways I have. And then they're right here towards the end there in that fifth and sixth, chapters five or verses five and six. He's kind of saying something really important that we need to zoom in on a little bit. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. All of a sudden, there is this use of an emotion from us towards God. If we look back at Scripture and look back kind of at the history, it's hard for us sometimes to piece all these things together, but if we were to start from this point and start to go backwards, there's a lot of things about us giving sacrifices to God. There's a lot of things about us being in reverence of a creator who made things. There's a lot of reference to following and obeying and having reference. But this is one of the real first cases where God's speaking or the word is speaking in which we are showing emotion towards God himself. And so he said, to those who are hating me is the iniquity. But then in verse 6, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. I think this is incredibly important. Because God is not just saying here, here's the law. I'm about to present the law to you, and here's the thing. He doesn't speak in the tone of, I am the creator who created the world and brought it into existence. This is how he could have started off the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who created everything, and at the snap of my finger, I could turn you to dust and wipe you from the face of this earth. You should fear me, you should be respectful of me, and if you step a toe out of line, I will crush you. Here's the law you should follow. That's not the presentation God gives. He says, I'm the God who heard your cries and rescued you. I heard your fear, I heard your hurt, I heard your concerns, and I came to rescue you and to bring you out of slavery. I am a God who simply asks that you recognize my value over all of those other carved images, all of, over all those other gods who do nothing for anyone. And time and time again, he proves himself throughout the rest of Scripture, showing that he is the God who shows up. He is the God who conquers enemies. He is the God who overcomes, while other gods um, don't live up to the hype, like we see with Elijah and the, the prophets of Baal on Mount, Car Mount Sinai. He's having this show off, and they pray all morning long, and no fire falls, and Elijah prays for a few seconds, and all of a sudden the altar is completely consumed. This amazing story over and over and over again, where God shows up and other gods don't, he's saying, listen, I am the one who's chasing after you. I am the one who sees you and loves you, and I have given so much for you. I simply ask that you love me in return and follow my commandments. Not that you follow out of fear and dread of what I may do, but that you follow these commandments out of love to those who love me and follow my commandments. This is kind of a new premise and concept here for these people, this idea that we would love God, that we would recognize his heart and his goodness and in turn serve him, not out of obligation, but out of love. I think about uh, all of us as we walk in our lives and, 
and uh, kind of experienced different things. And I would say some of us probably had parents who said these things, and maybe some of us have said these things. And we would talk to our kids, and we'd say, go clean your room. And in that moment, the kid goes, why? And what's the answer? Because I said so, of course, right? In that moment, it isn't a matter of why you need to clean your room. You don't need to ask questions. This is not some sort of democracy where you get to vote on whether this is a good idea. I am the authority here. You clean your room when I say so, right? And there's some benefit and some absolute precedent for that. So don't get me wrong and don't mishear me because I'm fearful in this conversation today that some of you might hear me to say, well, Nick's saying we should all be really soft on our kids and just love on them so that they'll follow us. No, there's a place for God's firmness, right? Scripture shows over and over again, God is firm with his people. He does command us to be reverent and stand in awe of him. It's not just this soft passive kind of relationship. There is a place for authority to exist, but we have to be careful because there's a very different line. We talk about our veterans today. I'm sure some of them could tell us a lot of stories about what authority and structure looks like in the military because when we say go make your room, it is because I said so. You don't question the order. You just go do it now or there will be consequences, right? But when we're talking about children, we're talking about the next generation, we're talking about people coming to follow God's word. It's not about simply saying, hey, you better do this because ultimately the consequence is hell. And if you step out of line, he will burn you for eternity. That's not an accurate representation of who our God is. Because our God, from the beginning of scripture, gives opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And yes, there are some stories in the Old Testament that seem pretty harsh. I I still go to this moment when the the Ark of the Covenant is being moved and God has told them not to touch it. There are poles there for a reason that we're supposed to hold on to, but they stumble and the thing shifts and this guy reaches out to put his hands on the side to brace it, to protect it, and he drops dead. And people read that story and they go, why would God kill the guy? He was just trying to protect the Ark. It was supposed to be valuable. It was supposed to be sacred. He probably loved and revered it. And here's the thing. I might think it's a little harsh too. But here's the thing. My understanding of God's perfect plan, the big picture of what eternity really means and the finite moment of this life and him understanding the faithfulness of that servant, I can't begin to be the judge on that. But what I can say is this. In that moment, God was teaching us that his presence is to be revered and to be respected like he said. It's kind of like Silas at 2. Silas at the age of one, two, even now three, Silas likes to run full steam ahead, right? He likes to just get out there and take off and go. And especially in the neighborhood we live with the quiet little street that we have, he doesn't really have much of a concept yet of what this street really means or what a parking lot really means. And there are times where, because I just want to take off and run, we've probably even seen it out here. (laughs) If I bolt out that front door, I'm going to take off and go. And in that moment, I know as a loving father that the consequences of him running out across that road are extremely detrimental. He's short, he's little, people aren't going to see him, and whether they meant to or not, whether they were going perfectly slow or too fast, it does not matter. The wrong timing and the wrong situation, he could get crushed by a car, severely hurt or worse. And in my mind, it makes perfect sense to deliver a nice, painful swat on the tail for him running out on the road. And that sounds, well, that's harsh. He doesn't understand. He doesn't get it yet. You're right, he doesn't. He doesn't understand yet. But I want him to understand that 
the running out in that road is associated with great pain. There's great consequence to that. And if I can deliver a little bit of pain in this moment that is fleeting, hopefully he starts to understand. And I think God is raising us as humanity throughout Scripture, and he's helping us to understand the consequences of our actions bear great weight. And as we look at the heart of the Old Testament, it isn't a different God who's wrathful and vengeful. In fact, some of the the cultures which God completely has the Israelites wipe out, we think, man, that's harsh. He's telling him to kill everyone in the city, everyone, even the livestock. And we think, wow, that's so harsh. But if we were to look deeper into the story, we'd realize that God was calling that group of people for 400 years to repent and come to him. He was sending messengers for 400 years saying, come back, come into relationship. And when we look at those pictures of God constantly calling out, trying to provide opportunities, trying to provide a law so that people can understand their guilt and their sin so that they could find a way to live correctly, so that they could provide sacrifices to be purified and cleaned. He's trying to provide systems and ways the whole way to pursue his people. God's heart is for us. If we read the rest of that passage that we read earlier in 1 Timothy chapter 2 as we talked about praying for our veterans, we would go down a little further and it says that it is God's desire that everyone would hear the word and to follow him. Just a few verses further down there, it says it is God's desire that everyone would hear the word and follow him. It's not his desire that anyone would perish or anyone would miss out. And when we start to see the heart of God, we look at him and we say, man, he's good. From the very beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned, he prophesied that there will be this battle, this conflict between the the serpent and between Eve's offspring, that there would be this battle, this conflict of good and evil, but that eventually he would send someone to crush the head of the serpent. The very first reference to Jesus is coming. From the very beginning of our sin, God has had a plan to rescue us and save us from the slavery and the bondage that we have to the guilt and the shame of our sin. He has done everything in his power to rescue us when we call in his name. He's provided men who would stand up to giants like David and facing Goliath and and people who would stand up with boldness to tackle the challenges ahead when they trusted in him and loved him and pursued his heart. And we look at all those stories and we say, man, we serve a God who is amazing. And to the point where we remember that verse that, that we heard just a few moments ago, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And then if we read on into verse 17, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world, to throw lightning bolts and destroy everyone who would step out of line. I came in the world to rescue and save the world. When we paint the picture of God's heart, God's heart is amazing. He is a good and wonderful and perfect God who is worth following, whose commandments are good. Because especially when we start to look at the commandments of God's word, we start to recognize and realize, oh, Murder. That's on the list, right? If we go down further in chapter 20, thou shalt not murder. That one sometimes feels to us like a pretty basic and simple, easy to follow rule. But in all honesty, the rage and the anger, the desire to beat someone is one of the first listed sins we see in Scripture. Not Adam and Eve taking the fruit when they were told not to, but their sons, Cain and Abel. Cain loses control of his anger and his emotions so much that he goes out and beats his own brother to death. And the rift and the brokenness and the 
the messed up situations that that causes, God understands what that kind of anger and that kind of hate and that kind of violence and frustration cause amongst his people. And it is his desire that we live at peace. His desire that we live in a healthy way that reflects love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And murder has no place there. Theft has no place there because it destroys relationship. Coveting has no place there because of what it does in our heart to tear apart relationship and to make us feel as though we have to compete with one another and vie for position. All of his laws are created not just for him, so that he has a system of rules that we are to follow. They're created for our well-being. To help us live in a more peaceful and loving and incredible way that he designed. Because he knows that is what is best for us. He doesn't say, don't go out and sleep around before you're married just because I don't like it and that's the rule. If we were to look at studies and talk to different people and we start to really wrestle with some of these situations, we realize that there are detrimental, hurtful things that take place in relationships and stuff that's really difficult to walk through. We talk about some of the other sin and brokenness in our world and we realize how it distorts and how it breaks relationship and how it destroys trust. And we start to realize that God's word is good. His law and his command is meant for our benefit And when I start to see that his desire is for my well-being, his desire is that we could live a life that is not just pleasing to him, but beneficial for us. John 10.10 says, I have come that you may have life to the full. It's not just about you following me and keeping me happy. It's I am trying to do this for your own good. And when I recognize the heart of God, it's a lot easier for me to want to follow his word. But here's the problem. If we're not careful, we can latch on to this picture that the world has of our God. Where we put all of our stakes and all of our emphasis on following the rules. I'm not saying follow the rules aren't important. But Jesus specifically comes later and says, what is, he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he doesn't reference one of the Ten Commandments. He references that passage that we talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And then Jesus says, and the second one is much the same, love your neighbor as yourself. These two are right there together. And then he says, all the other commandments hinge on these two things. They hang on these two things. If you can get loving the Lord your God right, and you can get loving your neighbor as you would yourself right, if you can get those two things right, the rest of the commandments, you'll notice, will start to fall into place. If you love the way I have loved. But if we're not careful, we can still put a lot of the emphasis on how we live morally. I worked with students for a long time, and I would talk to high schoolers. And here's the thing. I asked them, I said, I would ask this question. We'd have discussions. We'd sit around in a circle, and we'd talk. And I'd say, what is it that you feel like is expected of you as a part of the church? Like, what do you feel your role is in the church right now? And what do you feel is expected of you? And the answer, more often than not, was we feel like we're supposed to, like, not mess up. Like, You know, like, I feel like the biggest pressure is don't go out and party this weekend, or don't go get pregnant this weekend, or, um, you know, try to stay good, like, stay and come into church and, like, not mess up. And that was it. The gospel they were hearing from the church was, don't mess up. 
And the pressure was, don't cross that line, don't go too far, which is why one of the most commonly asked questions across my time in youth ministry from students, well, how far is too far? How much is too much? What is that boundary line? I want to know my limits because I don't want to step across them. Because we're so busy teaching the, the, the lesson of the law that says, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't get, date guys who do. Like, like, these are these little cliches that we've taught and we've embedded in their minds. And this is what it means to follow Jesus, don't mess up. Because if we cross that line, if we mess up, there's going to be really rough consequences. Instead of saying, what is the heart behind God's word? Does my neighbor know why I follow God? Is it because I want to be a good person and I don't want to go to hell? Because that's consequence and that's scary. And I'm not saying that's not a real thing. But isn't it more beneficial for me to want to follow God, not to avoid hell and bad consequences, but to spend eternity in the presence of the one who rescued me from my sins? the one who laid his life and sacrificed everything for me, is it a better reason and heart for wanting to follow because he is good and he is worth following? These fishermen laid down their nets to go follow this man because there was something about him that they knew was worth following. We have a lot of reasons that he's worth following. The question is, why are we doing it? But the problem is, if all students are hearing from us is don't mess up, if the next generation is saying you need to act like this or you need to be this, or if the next generation is hearing this message from the church, oh, these kids today, they're just such a mess. Because those stinking millennials, oh my goodness. Hey, by the way, I don't know if you know this or not. I was born in 1981. You hired a millennial. Oops, sorry. Um, I'm, on, I'm the older version of it, but I technically fall in that category. And here's the thing. There's so much of this stuff that exists in our world where you're from this generation, so therefore you think this way. And we kind of stereotype and generalize, and therefore younger generations hear older generations speaking ill of this, and they go, wait, that's kind of me. And now all of a sudden, it's kind of this mindset. If, if you don't fall in line, if you don't do things the way I think they should be done, then you got to get it together or you're not worth my time. Even if that's not what we said at all, that's really quickly how the message can be conveyed. We hear people talk and we see this venomous kind of attitude that exists in our culture, especially prevalent this past week, where if you don't represent this, if you're not in line with my agenda, if you don't believe the same way I do, if you don't vote the same way I do, we draw these battle lines and we make everybody else the enemy. And the younger generation, I'm going to be honest, they have a very good heart. They have a heart that is for other people. It may not look like it. It may not always feel like it. They may feel angry and frustrated and isolated, and all they want to do is play on their cell phones and be in their rooms. But generally speaking, there are a lot of younger people in this generation, Generation Z and, and the millennials who are now past. Generation Z is where we're at now, and there's speculation that that's probably the last generation we'll talk about because now everything's moving so fast with culture and technology that the lines are going to get super blurry, and we're not even going to be able to identify generations anymore. That's one theory. But with all of that being said, these students, these young people, they're seeing the world and they get so frustrated that we would treat a certain demographic or group of people a certain way. They get so frustrated when they hear people talking hatefully. But at the same time, that is the example they're given and therefore it's easier just to lash back and talk about, well, these older people, they just don't get it. 
have we ever been in that spot before maybe when we were younger? If we probably are honest with ourselves, has this not been a problem that's existed with every generation ever for always? Every generation has had a generation before them who doesn't understand them because culture continues to advance and become different and the stuff that they experience, I have no clue what it's like to grow up with one of these always in my hand. I had a perfectly normal childhood where I did not have one of these in my pocket. I I went outside and played and it was very different from what I know my kids are going to grow up in and I won't understand it. But I know this, I love them dearly and I want to. And I don't want to say, oh, those kids, they're just a mess. And until they get this figured out, oh, I don't even know what to do with them. And we just kind of write them off. They won't feel like their heart is being fought for. They won't care about what the heart of the message is. They'll just push back because we all know when there is that iron fist rule, we push back against it. It's part of the reason we celebrate what we celebrate today. In the 1700s, there were a bunch of people here who said, there's this dude over there who's taxing us for no reason that he's given any reason. He's not giving us reason why he's taxing us. He's just taxing us. And he's doing all these things that don't affect us. They just impact him. And I think he's just benefiting off of what we're going through. And this isn't right. And they pushed back against it because they didn't like this idea of someone just saying, this is how it is. Get over it. We don't care if it affects you or not. Our country exists because we didn't want to put up with that kind of leadership. And we implemented this system that says the people's voice matters, that voting and democracy in this election process. And we had a leader and a president who didn't even think it was healthy for him to stay in office because people would rely too much on one leader, and he stepped away from it. They were ready to let him be president forever. And he says, we don't need another king, another authoritative figure who just says this is how it is. Because they recognized the brokenness in one person just saying, this is how it is, get over it. And so they built a system of checks and balances accountability, one that would allow the heart of what they were doing to come through. Now, I think like every good thing over time, stuff breaks down and gets messed up because we're human and we like to mess things up. But ultimately, God is calling us to follow his law because we love him, and he's calling us in that law not just to love him, but to love his children, to love our neighbors, ourselves. And so the question is, Are we just living a life where we follow the rules and we're telling kids, this is just the way it is, it's God's word, you've got to get over it. If you don't understand what he does, that's fine, get over it. He says that's the way it works and that's the way you've got to get used to it. Or are we taking the time to say you matter? And you may not look the way I want you to look and you may not act the way I want you to act, but here's the thing, I know my God is good and I know that he loves you and I'm willing to go through anything to chase after your heart. It's my favorite story, one of my favorite stories in scripture is the woman at the well. In John chapter 4, this woman has everything going against her culturally. She's Samaritan. She's a woman. She is an adulterous woman. Who the, she's coming to the, the well at noon because no one else, even in her Samaritan village, wants to be around her, and she feels ashamed to be around them. She is the absolute opposite of the type of person Jesus should be interacting with. And he comes to that well. And he starts talking to her, which is in and of itself broken and messed up and not allowed. But in talking to her, in talking ideas of theology and worship and who the Messiah is, he gives her such significant value and says, you matter to me. And in speaking to her in a loving, caring way, he still calls out some of the the brokenness in her life eventually. And therefore, later, she goes around running around town saying, hey, come meet this man who told me everything I ever did. That's not a boast we hear from a lot of people. But because he gave her value, because he put her first, she wanted to introduce her friends to Jesus. 
because she understood his heart was for her, to rescue and redeem her. And in trying to reach the next generation, in trying to reach any generation, in terms of trying to reach anyone that we interact with, we have to have the same heart as Christ Jesus, who was willing to sacrifice and lay himself down for others, meaning I have to be able to find a way to see the value in someone before I see their brokenness and sin. I have to be able to wrestle with hard questions I may not even know the answers to and study alongside of someone to say, hey, I know that God loves you and I know that you matter to him. See his heart because he didn't just call you to follow these commandments blindly out of a threat of I will smite you and burn you to the ground if you don't. There are consequences, but he desperately wants us to avoid those. And ultimately, I think those consequences look like this. I think what is most awful and horrible about hell is the idea of being completely absent of God's presence. Any place that is completely void in absence of God's presence is someplace I want nothing to do with. And the pure torment of being without everything that God is is so horrible, I can't think of life without him. That is why he's worth following. Not to avoid punishment and a spanking, but to seek his face and to want to love him and serve him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might, because he already loved you with everything he had. The heart of the gospel is that God is for you, and he is doing everything in his power to redeem you. The worship team wants to come up. We're going to come into this time this morning, and I would say this. No matter if it's your neighbor, the kid down the street, there's a lot of things that cause us to be divided, cause us to be broken, to get us fixed on what it means to just follow the rules and not mess up. And we feel like we have to live in a certain system to be accepted. And I'm not saying we should just accept everyone and let them live however they want. Jesus told the woman caught in adultery that he picked up off the ground after he had said, neither do I condemn you. He said, go and leave your life of sin. His calling in our life is to grow and get better. It is a call to help us live that life to the full because he understands that the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But he has come that we might have life to the full because his law, his teaching, his wisdom, his love gives us life to the full. And so the question becomes, do we want to pursue after him? Do we want to chase after his heart and have the same heart that draws other into the, others into that relationship? Or do we just want to continue to live in our own system and hope that everybody else figures it out? And so this morning I'm going to ask you to stand, and whatever it is you need to pray for this morning, if you have something heavy on your heart and you want prayer, we'd be happy to pray with you. If you want to just wrestle and sit where you're at, that's fine too. If you want to come and wrestle through something and talk through things, we're always willing to talk. But I would just beg with you this morning, seek after God's heart and his presence, because unless we are fighting for the heart of the next generation, fighting for the heart of our neighbors, fighting for the heart of those around us, and helping them see the heart of God, I'm afraid that we're going to continue to lose this battle, and more and more people will fall into that cultural stance of, I'm not sure God's that good. I'm not sure that his word's that trustworthy. I'm just not sure he's that good. Let's prove that he is good by living the way he's called us to live. Let's pray. Father, I love you, and I'm thankful for your love that you have poured out on us. And I thank you for that call that you called us in our life to chase after you and to love you with all of our heart. And so this morning, I pray that we would just do that, that we would love you and seek after you with everything we have, and that in that way, we would start to live like you and have a heart that would draw others into relationship with you. 
It's in the wonderful love of, and name of Jesus we pray. Amen.